Friends, welcome back to Nick and Dan's Bible Study Podcast. Nick is still not here, but uh, that's okay, Brent, because I have a great guest, Brent Sleesman. He is the president of Weinbrenner Theological Seminary, the seminary that's associated with our denomination. And uh, Brent, I'm excited to have you here today. You, um, you. In another conversation, I, you and I were both a part of. You kind of, I guess. I should give you a hard time about this because you really have taken up a lot of my time on this, on some of these quests and searches. You just kind of threw out something about what story is it that we're living in? I'm not sure exactly how you phrased it, but this idea got me going. You mentioned a book. I read a book. I read a bunch of more books. And uh, here, what about a month later, we're still talking about it. Well, I, I think that's uh, teaching at its finest, right? Uh, so any, you, you ruined it, though. I, I was going to try to impersonate Nick. And I okay. was ready to go until you already revealed that. What uh, would you? What would you? You know, what would you do if you go try to impersonate well, Nick? <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't do it now. Should, yeah, you ruined the moment. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you're so, like teaching uh, at the finest. I'm like teaching at the worst. So that's, <laughs> that's about right. Uh, but thank you for being here, Brent. Um, uh, I'm glad to. And I, I know you've been thinking about this subject matter. Of course, with there's. As you and I have chatted about, there's a lot of places we could go um, here. But uh, can you, you just want to say a couple minutes about maybe how like this subject matter got rolling in your mind and kind of why you know you you kind of instinctively brought it to the forefront as we were we were talking about something else in this conversation that we were on a Zoom call with together. It wasn't about this specifically, and something that was said I don't remember exactly what, but you kind of took the conversation here, and when you did, I thought. You know that's that's important. That's something we need to we need to drill down on. Yeah. So uh, so where I was several months ago, uh, I was reading the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, and so he wrote a book after Virtue, and I, I was just in the final stages of finishing up that. And near the end of McIntyre's book, he he raised the question, which then I gave voice to as part of the the meeting that we were in, was just that idea. And I can pull McIntyre and read from it, but really what he says is. That uh, that before we can answer the question, what am I supposed to do? We need to answer the the prior question of which story or stories am I a part? And so that was fresh in my mind. And I think yeah. we were talking about you know some of the tensions between churches and politics and discipleship and and that's. But McIntyre's yeah. question was just really rattling around. And I was first introduced to his work almost twenty years ago. And so just really thinking about that question, what story am I in? And then if I'm going to be a good character in a particular story, uh, what does that mean for my actions, my thoughts? And yeah. so, so that, that's really, that, that's where that idea came from. It was my words, uh, my interpretation of McIntyre, but then as a person of faith, really trying to think about, because McIntyre, when he wrote this, was nominal in his faith, but he's since become holistic as a Roman Catholic and was on faculty at Notre Dame. And so that really begins to come out in some of his later work. So he wasn't really raising the question necessarily as a person of faith, but I think we can take that question and then begin to think about, okay, as a person of faith, as a Christian, whether it's church as a God, non-church as a God, what story, or, and I, I think it's, it's interesting that McIntyre allows it to be plural because we can be part of multiple stories. There's, there's yeah. not one, you know, monolithic uh, story that we're a part of. And so I think then, so that's, that's where it originated for me 
in my reading and why I gave voice to it. And then yeah. trying to think about, you know, what, where does my story start today? And, uh, you know, and so even thinking about story, I think the concept, people might think about a television show or a novel, but really another way to think about it is just a, a, a tradition that we live within. Yeah. Every tradition that we live within had a starting point. And as a person of faith, we think about Genesis, we think about God's creation. And then what does it mean for me to say that I am, I am a, a member, I'm a character, I'm uh, playing a part in a story that was created in God's creation. And then what does that mean for me is I think just a good place for a person of faith to, to really start thinking about their walk. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good, Brent. And, and, and I think the idea of living in multiple stories is, is an interesting one. And, and one that's, I think important to kind of sort out too. And one of the things, you know, you mentioned politics, Nick and I have, you know, kind of weaved in and out of kind of some political, not, you know, partisan stuff, but just thoughts about how that fits together. It's kind of, it, it, it's interesting, right? Because for, for you and for you and I, we are both citizens of the United States of America. And so that is one story that we're in. Um, and, and yet, you know, we're also part of the Christian story. And I think how those stories fit together uh, is an interesting one because for a lot of people in our, and we'll get to, we'll get kind of into our, some of our text here in a second, but you know, for some of, for some people, it seems like at times those stories are very much kind of conflated. And, uh, and, and how do you, how do you fit that together and how, you know, how do we think about allegiance to, you know, okay, you mentioned multiple stories, but is there one story that's kind of, that's primary, that's the biggest thing. And then the other, other things maybe can be valid inside of that. But if we don't get those dynamics, right, we can maybe get in trouble too. Does that make any sense? Oh, that makes complete sense. And, uh, so you introduced my role at Weinbrenner. I mean, by training, I've been a pastor, but I'm an academic. So I, I think a lot about what I've read and what other people have written. And so, uh, you know, I think about C.S. Lewis and, and he's written. He was one of those great voices who was uh, popular. People know his Chronicles of Narnia, but he's written a great deal of nonfiction as well. And one of his more well-known books is The Four Loves. And he makes the point there that when we, because there's four different words for love in Greek and the New Testament. And his point there, I think, resonates with what you're saying, that it's not an issue. There's no problem with there's different kind of loves. The issue is whenever we get the priority out of whack. And so, yeah. you know, I think of it. Yes, I'm a citizen. I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a, uh, I'm a parent. I'm an employee. I'm a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm a follower of Christ. You know, and it's it's great to be all these different stories, but it becomes an issue of prioritization. And I think we could make a case that if any story other than God's story is our priority, that's when, you know, thinking of Lewis's word, it's not an issue of having multiple loves in play. It's an issue of prioritization. It's whenever, to your point about politics, when somebody forgets that their political leanings should not come prior to their faith in Christ, that's that's when we begin to get out of alignment because we haven't prioritized in a way that I think is God honoring and what yeah. he would really invite us into. Yeah. yeah, that makes that makes sense. One of the one of the questions that I have as we kind of um you know dig into this subject matter is I wonder how many people think 
think in this way, Brent. I like. I wonder how many people think about like what you know, what story am I living, and what you know, what is because I think for myself, you know, for a lot of time, the answer has kind of been not a whole lot. You know, we we easily default into kind of just going through the motions of life, right? Like I got a job, I got chores to do, I got a family to take care of, I got a whatever, you know, whatever. We're just doing certain things or we're maybe trying to live according to certain principles that we think maybe are timeless, either, you know, either as a citizen or as a Christian or whatever it is. Do you think that it's, I mean, is it normal for us to think about living in a story or narrative or tradition? Or do you think that's something that a lot of people maybe don't even think about? I, I think a lot of people don't even think about it. I'll give you an example completely unrelated to uh, faith here in a moment. But, you know, there's a comic, some people may have seen it, that there's uh, two young fish swimming through the water and an old fish swimming the other direction. And the old fish says, hey, boys, how's the water today? And they look at each other and they say, what's water? Or, you know, I, Marshall McLuhan has made the statement, we don't know who discovered water, but we're pretty sure it wasn't the fish. The, the idea being that when we're so immersed in a system that we're blind, that we're even in a system. And so yeah. the, the example, uh, completely unrelated to this, but Douglas Rushkoff has written a great deal about our economic uh, system that we're in and the story that we're in. And so one example uh, is that when we think about capitalism in the United States, there's a lot of people that just think about capitalism and our commerce and so on as being as real to us as if God designed it in Genesis chapter one and two. But Rushkoff really lays out, I think, a legitimate case that it was in the Renaissance and, you know, the 14th, 16th century, where there were some very deliberate actions taken as things were changing from a feudal society to more of an aristocracy and into the Renaissance. These ideas that we've heard about in history, maybe in, you know, high school that we don't think about the Renaissance really being the place where our economic system originated. But things as simple as a centralized currency, a central bank, those were built systems that today we've forgotten that they were ever built and we just accept them as given in our environment as, as true as the air we breathe. So I, I think to your point that there are so many things that we live within that were built and designed for an explicit purpose but if we are not reflective and intentional of recognizing those things, we just begin to live our lives according to someone else's agenda and forget that we actually have choices that we can make that can either be God honoring, not God honoring. Um, so we're so it, it's, it's deeper. It's not just a matter of faith. But no, to answer your question, yeah. I, I don't think most people uh, really think about living within a story. I think most people think about living. Yeah, and it, it it takes it takes reading and conversations like this to really serve as moments of interruption to cause someone to stop. And I'll be honest, I'm grateful to McIntyre for raising the question of you know what story are you in? And I know from the conversation we were in when I raised the question, some of the feedback was I've never thought about that before, simply because someone asked the question. Yeah, and and so I think hopefully if this serves anything, it gives somebody the, just a moment to pause and say. You know, what what story am I within? And if I'm not in the story that, that I need to be, and I know we're going to get into what that looks like, yeah. then what what does that look like to try to, to, to uproot myself 
and put myself into a different story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean we, t- we tend, I think, and I'll say this for myself, you know, to not always think intentionally about, I mean, so, so often in the, in the local church, you know, the capacity that I serve, we, there's certain things that are kind of done. They're done in maybe consistently across different churches or just in our congregational setting. And when somebody says, well, why do you do that? The answer often becomes, well, we've always done it that way. Right. And so it ceases to be about, well, here's, you know, here's the purpose why it serves this greater thing or, you know, this to, to form us into this, you know, into this, the kind of people that we're, you know, we are, which ties back into the story thing. And, um, you know, even in other traditions, maybe different than where you and I are at in the churches of God, more liturgical traditions where those that more set liturgy, uh, at one point at least, and in some cases today, could be very clearly tied. We do this practice, which is a, which is a word that relates to kind of the concept that you're talking about as well too. We do this practice because it, you know it forms us into this kind of person that lives into this kind of story. Now, I think that a lot of people today they've lost those connection points. Sometimes, yeah. not always. You know, it, it, they can be drawn back together. But again, it, it ties back into this whole bigger conversation of why do we do what we do? You know, how does it help us to become a kind of people and in what, you know, what kind of person, as you said, is required, you know, for the, for the story and all the great stories that we know about, right. They require a certain kind of character to be the hero. They don't always start with all the equipment, but they have to get it along the way if they don't have it. Yeah. Well, to to echo what you're saying, I think awareness and intentionality, there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong. You're a parent. I mean, we tell our kids all the time, uh, do this, and we don't really have a good reason for it. It might be because that's just what we did. It was because what our parents told us. It's just because that's what we need done in that moment. There, there's no problem in a tradition necessarily where people just do things because that's what they have done in the past. That's just how yeah. things are done. But when you're invited into those moments, but that should never be someone's justification for why they do something once they become aware that. I never thought about it before, you know, awareness. And so now what the, the why question, the intentionality, but why are you doing it now? Maybe, maybe you did it yesterday because that's what you always did before. And up till then it was fine, but you're aware of this now. So what's your intentionality of how are you going to do this differently? Because saying that, well, that's what we've done in the past. That's why we're going to do it this way tomorrow. That's really not a good reason. Um, Yeah. And, and I think it helps too, as we, like you said, like as parents, sometimes you just got to kind of block and tackle and get the job done sort of thing. But the more, you know, and when certain, when our kids go through those certain stages where they're like the why, 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 and you know, you, you, the default's usually because I said so. Right. Um, but I think as even in those kind of mundane things, as we do take the time to step back and think about that, I think there are whys. you know, there are whys because we are, wanting our kids to do certain things because we want them to become a certain kind of person. Right. And, uh, and depending on our story, maybe that's, you know, that whatever, you know, if, if we're talking about being a citizen of the USA, we're talking about, we want our kids to be good, you know, good citizens of this country. As we think about our, our faith, we want people to, uh, be good, uh, disciples of Jesus and kind of what, you know, how we think about framing that story is going to depend on, you know, the things that we do, the practices, the habits and the, and the, and the character qualities. So Brent, this is, I mean, you kind of opened a can of worms here with this one and, uh, you've got me thinking about it. The more I think about it, the more I want to think about it because yeah. I think it's fruitful. Well, so, uh, 
one more example, and then we can probably get into more of the specifics of, you know, what is the, the faith-based story? You know, you, when you think, I think a lot in terms of history, theology, philosophy. And so, you know, mid 20th century, just to kind of put a timeline, is when people really began to get a sense of what you're saying, um, of, of why is this such an issue? And so Luigi Pirandello was, uh, was an author, wrote some plays and so on. But but one of the plays that I think really illustrates, just to put a, a phrase to this, he wrote a play called Six Characters in Search of an Author. And what he did was, and you know, usually we think about characters in a story, his play, and it sounds really bizarre because it is bizarre, is just about six characters who have all been separated from their story, but somehow they all end up together in a play. So you have these, you have these really bizarre caricatures of there's this dad and you know, there's the couple that end up fighting and kiss. But his point was six characters in search of the author, even though the explanation doesn't make sense, is the idea that we're all intended, and Pirandello's point was, we're all intended to be a part of a story. And I think a lot of times there's no question that issues like higher anxiety, and even though we're more socially connected through social media, we're actually, uh, um, first name's escaping me, but Turkle uh, is her last name, wrote Alone Together. This idea that you know we, we have this sense of, even though we can be connected in this, this moment through digital technology, there's actually a loneliness and an isolation that, that is persisting. And so you know, as the 20th century, and even into the year 2020 and beyond, this idea of why does this matter? I guess, you know, trying to transition and thinking about why does this question of what story we're in matter? Well, you take a look at the rising suicide rates. You take a look at the increase in anxiety. You take a look at the isolationism, even though we are more equipped in this moment to be connected to people than we've ever been. And yet there's more isolation, more loneliness. It's because people are trying to tell themselves a story that they're just like characters in search of an author. They, they've put themselves in positions of isolation whenever God is providing. And I'm not trying to preach here. I just, and, and for some people, they even find, I mean, people find meaning in stories. This is a whole other argument, but you know, people can find meaning in stories outside of a faith commitment. Right. But in this context, God's story, it's an invitation to us, but we've got to join the story yeah. And we've got to prioritize it in such a way that allows our lives to have meaning. Other, otherwise, we're like those characters in search of an author yeah. that leads to loneliness and depression and, you know, fill in yeah. the blank with all the items. Yeah, no, I think you I, I, I think you're right. And and it's and we'll, we'll jump into our narrative here in a second. But, you know, and I think it also relates to part of it's a big thing about but why the church is failing to kind of capture the imagination of younger people, not just younger people, but a lot of people right now. And I think sometimes maybe the the desire is kind of outpacing the story that the church is telling, uh, not because the the biblical story is lacking, but because yeah. we've not seen the fullness of it. And it's, it's so, for me, the, the big picture is so grand and, and sweeping and amazing that it, it kind of captures, it sweeps us up into it and it captures our attention. But sometimes we're just, when we, when we show up, so to speak at church, or whatever, the story that we hear is something I think often so much less than the robust biblical story. And so People are bored with it. I think is part of the problem. Young people, you're, they're, they're, it's not enough what we're what we're telling. The Bible is enough. The what the kingdom is enough, but what we're telling is too small. 
Well, and, and for you know, for those that are that are listening and watching, and they're having trouble thinking about this in a U.S. context, let me jump to uh, an inter international context that might make a little bit more sense and help illustrate. I've spent a lot of time in Haiti, both at the Churches of God uh, sites as well as some other places northern north in the country. Uh, I've taught at a seminary in Haiti, and so I've had a lot of conversations about this. And so there's a lot of missionaries and a lot who have spent time in Haiti who have really lamented the fact that even though there's a high percentage of money, it's local to the United States, there still really isn't as much evidence as people would like that the, the Christian faith, as we understand it, an evangelical expression of the faith has really taken root. And my critique of, of evangelicalism and Western Christianity in Haiti echoes what you're saying. So when you think about Haiti and its history, heavily influenced by the slave trade. It had a, a heavy influence of African tribal religions. And when you think about ritualism, what you're thinking about is this, this hereditary and this religious system, uh, the voodoo that's risen, that is all encompassing. It, it, it's an embodiment, it's a lifestyle, uh, it's got dances, it's got music, and you know, it's just, it's everything. Your whole life is, is about your, your faith it's a misguided faith, but your whole life, everything, your communities, everything's organized around your faith. And so what happened when those, and, and I'm not critical of this, like, but when people quote of the book, you know, when people of the Bible come in and say, we want you to get rid of all your images of your faith. We want you to get rid of your dance. We want you to get rid of your tribal history. And what we want to give you are words on a page. And I think what's happened is when my whole life, I have so much room, God designed us to live an embodied faith. But when all you give me are four steps from Romans, words on a page, that lacks so much. And so what begins, what happens? People begin to drift back to voodoo. They begin to drift back to their tribal religions because what they've lost is this sense that my faith, Christian or otherwise, is to be all-encompassing. Yeah. And so there, there are times that, and I, I understand Martin Luther, sola scriptura, it doesn't necessarily mean what we've taken it to mean today, but you know, it's a matter of the Bible, rule of faith and practice. I affirm all those things, I'm not trying to get myself in trouble. Right. But what happens is when missionaries in Haiti or pastors in our churches today try to tell people to get rid of all their embodiment of life, all their joy, and replace it with black and white letters on a page. Yeah. All of a sudden, why, why would I embrace that? Yeah. Why would I choose to get rid of the joy, the experience, simply to agree to letters on a page? So, there, so part of this for me isn't just you know, an academic exercise. But it, it's a realization when we can see ourselves becoming characters in a story, all of a sudden it becomes a lived reality as opposed to simply trying to be words on a page. And, and, I, and I hesitate to say that damage has been done, but I think damage has been done for those that, that have, have missed, that have treated the Bible like a John Grisham novel as opposed to recognizing in John one where, I mean, <laughs> Jesus is the word like yeah. not, it's not, it doesn't mean that Jesus is a bunch of words on a page, but we're not following a book. We're following yeah. a person 
and we we miss that point repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that's what and the and the well the question we're not going to answer today, but is the question what what is the purpose of the scripture? You know, what does the scripture, the Bible, shape us into? Um, and that's kind of back to our core question, you know. But but it's a it's a good discussion to have sometimes. You know, what what is the purpose of the scripture that we have? And that you know, it, I think is a very important question that kind of that. Well, I, I think in. I think we're going to get there. I I, okay. I, I can. I can be quicker and I think we, we can say what it's not. Yeah. It's not a rule book. Right. It, it you know, it's, it's in, in, in this context. And so the risk of saying this, you know, somebody can lift it out, but it's not a guide for living the way that we, we think about it often. Like a self-help book kind of thing. Exactly. Right? It's, right. I, I think the Bible, when we think about it as a, as a comprehensive narrative, it's God's invitation to us to join his story. Yeah. It's it's that I think it's that simple. It tells the high points, but it it's not it's not what we've tried to make it. And so, you know, and I think it is relevant here before we get into the story portion, you know, FF Bruce and others have written about how the canon of scripture was formed. And what we've done is we've mistaken a post-printing press understanding of the Bible where we've reduced it to words on a page like a novel, like a dictionary, like an encyclopedia, and we treat it like that. And we forget that there were generations in which the scripture was told orally. Right. The Psalms the Psalms weren't written in the way that we think about them being written. They were told. And finally, someone decided we should probably write these down. Now, the Holy Spirit worked through that. But when you yeah. read the history and the hundreds of years it took for the what we would call the canon or the books that are in the New Testament, the books that are in the Old Testament, yeah. So we, I think there is something here that when we talk about the Bible being an invitation to join God's story, that's very much a pre-15th century understanding. But I'd rather stand with the 3,000 years from, you know, creation or whatever, you know, yeah. until the printing press than the, the 600 years since Martin Luther and the printing press. I, I'm going to kind of err on the, the side of the history around cool. the time of Jesus. There's so many fascinating, you know, things that we get in here too. But yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, the whole, you mentioned the Psalms, but not just the Psalms go back to the, to the Pentateuch. It was, a, it was, you know, the things that they were told to recite. People weren't walking around with a copy of anything. You know, nobody was. And when you get to the New Testament and you realize it took, you know, at least conservatively, even three decades for the gospels as we have them to be penned in the form that we, that we have them. And so uh, there was, there was something else that kind of was a priority to which the, the written text was became a bolster or like, or, a, or something that would reinforce uh, what it is that the Christians knew that they believed in the narrative that they lived into to kind of help, right. Set some of those practices. And there's, so there's so many ways that we get off off track, we either can kind of have this salvation story that we kind of do these points and then we put it in our back pocket and go back and pursue for us the American dream, right? Or the big house or the whatever else. We have the salvation in our back pocket. You know, we know where we're going, we're dying, but then we go off and our energy, right, is given to something else. Or like you were saying about scripture, we kind of pull out principles and we say, well, you live by this principle. But we often do that without giving the narrative, without giving the story, without giving the framework that we invite people into. And that, yes, like these things are part of how we live 
as people of that story, right? As the, as the characters that are required for this kingdom gospel story. But we just, instead we just say to the world, oh, well, if you just lived according to this principle, you know, you'd be okay. And that really misses the point, right? Yeah, well, and, and, and real quick, you know, we think about John 1, I think a lot about what it means for Jesus to be called the word. And, you know, th th there is something mystical in the sense that the word is scripture, the word is a person, but, you know, something happening, si happening simultaneously to John being written was there was a transition from handwriting or um, from, from spoken uh, interaction and communication to handwriting. And so even the concept of logos or the word meant something different in the first century. And so when you think about my saying the word hello, you can't see that. But if I write it down, you can. And, and John's whole point was that Jesus, this notion of word, when I say something, it's invisible. But when I write it down, it becomes visible. John's whole notion of using the word logos and Walter Ong and others, I mean, help inform this perspective. But it was that John was making the point, as we read in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Yeah. That the, the word simply meant that what was invisible is now visible. Mm. It, it, it's not it's not making a point that somehow Jesus is the Bible. So therefore, we need to memorize John 3, 16, et cetera, et cetera. It was John's point in his context, in his history, was this God who's been invisible is now visible in the person of Jesus. Mm. And, and I mean, John fits well within Christ, within Christmas literature. And, you know, he doesn't always. It doesn't always seem obvious in Matthew, Mark, right. and Luke. But anyway, you know, it's so much, the whole study of scripture and what the Bible is, is a much richer conversation than we've often made it. Yeah. But I think we have to begin to, to pull back some of these layers, even for somebody really to understand what, what does it mean? If you say the Bible is God's invitation to join his story, that's different for me because I've always read the Bible as a book that I should memorize so that I could know more Bible. And, and you know, and, and it just, and it, it forms us, it shapes us, and there's no problem with that. But again, back to that awareness and intentionality, what we, we, the Bible is much richer of a book than just something we should read and memorize. Yeah. And I think we've reduced it to something that was never intended to be. Yeah. Well, we kind of, we we kind of flipped our episode uh, around a little bit, so let's let's do it upside down the way that Jesus does it's a, lot, a lot of stuff, right? And let's uh, let's spend the the last ten or fifteen minutes we have. Um, I mentioned uh, as we were chatting about this beforehand, you mentioned the story of Abraham as kind of an entry point, perhaps, uh, and I love that too, Brent, because I think our failure, as at least in the evangelical world that I've tasted and experienced over 25 years or so. Um, we've been kind of Old Testament poor. And I think that relates to this subject matter that we're talking about is that we kind of, we're often valuing propositional truths or a plan or principles or whatever else over story. And what is like, you know, 80 plus percent of the old, of our Old Testament, right? It's story, it's narrative. Um, and so it's no, it's no surprise really to me that as we've shifted from you know, to other places, largely, I, I, you know, we can overstate or caricature or whatever, but largely the Old Testament kind of fades into the background where we kind of move from Genesis 1-3 to John 3-16, yeah. you know, and we miss a whole lot 
that really is vital, right? What I, I know you're always looking for a soundbite, so I'll, I'll drop one for you here. I, you know, I think the, the when we think about uh, our faith, it doesn't start with us. The Romans road and trying to start with Romans 3.23 or 6.23 is a completely corrupt use of scripture when it comes to God's invitation for us. And so, you know, when you think about just jumping quick to Genesis 1.1, the fourth word, in the beginning, God. The story starts with God, mm. not with us. And I, I think the, so you can go through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You see the flood, you see the Tower of Babel. I mean, there's important people at work there. You've got the creation narrative. But I, I really think it is within Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham, that we really can think about a starting point of God saying, okay, I, God always had a plan, but his plan becomes much clearer now to say, Abraham, it's through you and your family that we are going to build this kingdom. And so, you know, quickly, we, we think about Abraham and, and Genesis chapter 12, God calls him, uh, his family, we, all of a sudden, you know, you jump a few chapters ahead, what happens? The Israelites, now there are people, uh, the Israelites are in Egypt and they've forgotten God's provision. Moses leads them out. And so you begin to see this story, the call of Abraham, the exodus of Moses. You move through and you get up to David being called as a king. And, and so even just with Abraham, Moses and David, you begin to have key frameworks to understand the person of Jesus. And you made the point that we're a very Old Testament poor church. I don't think, honestly, we can fully understand the significance of who Jesus is if we don't have at least an understanding and we're not preaching on the call of Abraham, where God has God has called us out. And you know, one of the things that Paul makes a point in Romans is as a Christian, I serve another people's God. I'm a Gentile. And and we, you know, in that world where we've completely missed it. We like to think about somehow that God, you know, we're, we've been spoon fed that Jesus died for me. He did. And, and that's true. And I'm not dismissing that. But when we look at the New Testament, it wasn't written for me. Jesus didn't come as, quote, my people. I'm not Jewish by history. Yeah. I've been grafted yeah. in, yeah. Right. you know, and, and so when we think about but that call of Abraham where we've been where you've been chosen out of many people. The exodus of, Mo of Moses and the parting of the Red Sea and this idea of conquering uh, death in the Passover, this notion that David could become a king. And then you get into the prophecies of Isaiah. But we cannot have a, a proper and I think holistic understanding of Jesus in terms of prophet, priest and king if we don't understand Abraham. Moses, David, there's more in the Old Testament. But so, you know. We like to start, well, Jesus died for my sins. And again, we, we, that's such a reduction. Yes, that is true. And I think Dallas Willard, you and I have talked about that. You know, Dallas Willard makes that point. Yes, everyone hear me. Jesus did die for our sins. But if we reduce what Jesus did simply to that exchange, we have missed. It's not that Jesus isn't the king of my heart. Jesus is the king of all creation. And so... You know, we've got to recognize that the story starts in Genesis chapter one, where yeah. God created, you know, we see the fall in the early chapters of Genesis and what Jesus did in his resurrection was restored all of creation. 
And so, yes, I God loves me enough that my salvation is secure because I have a faith in Jesus. But the story doesn't start with my sin. The story starts with God's creation. And we have just the 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 church in the U.S., the evangelical church and McIntyre even speaks to some of this just with evangelicalism and the Enlightenment. We have just royally messed that up. And what we believe should be guided by kingdom, guided by gospel. Scott McKnight talks about the King Jesus gospel, but the resurrection of Jesus makes him the king yeah. of the kingdom. It's not about me, although I have a place in the kingdom. And we've right. just we've just yeah. messed that up. Well, really, so the gospel kind of comes back to what you started with, Genesis 1, the fourth word, right? That it's God, that it's God, that's all about God. And the gospel still all about God. It's about Jesus, you know, and, and the the proclamation is that Jesus is Lord. Uh, and even that the idea that we talk about like Christ, uh, Christ's death, that's it's a, it's a cross-shaped king, cross-shaped kingdom, that it's his kingdom. And the idea that I mean, for me, it's a it's a fundamental thing, Brent, that we that we get that right because I think it short it short circuits the story, it short circuits discipleship. When the invitation becomes, here's what God has to offer you. Here's how, here's how, you know, God could bolster your life if you would, if you would only let him, you know, here's how he could make your life better. Um, and, and again, those things are actually true, but they only become true in their application when we understand, right. The big story that we're being called to. So it's not about necessarily about us inviting Jesus. It's about him inviting us. Yeah, so uh, that's what that's what the cross that what the cross is is him and is him making that way and in the resurrection uh, and in the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit right all those pieces that's about him including us in this big story that we're talking about. There, there's a big church in Northwest Ohio that uses the uh, the slogan, and you'll see uh, signs in people's yards. And if there's anybody in the Findlay area that's made it this far in our conversation, they'll know exactly who I'm talking about. But they they use the phrase "you matter." It's on their billboards. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's a church of twenty, thirty thousand people, I believe, um, of multiple campuses. You know, but and and I every time I see that, you know, I I nod in agreement. Yes, yeah. There's no I matter, but at the same time, I stop and think: is that is that really is that really the best thing that we as a church have to offer our communities? where we have racial injustice, we have massive health concerns, we've got a completely broken political system, the economy is is working against those most in need, and I'm not a raging socialist, so nobody needs to be yeah. concerned about it. But, you know, the best thing we have to offer is that you matter when it, it's that very individualism and isolationism that honestly is at the root cause of this. The, the, the story is there is a God. Now, this, and here's part of the problem. It, it's not transportable to a billboard. It's yeah. not as transportable to a marketing scheme. It doesn't look good on a business card or a website. And, and when we've sold out to those strategies, we end up using two-word slogans that don't capture the richness of the gospel. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. I believe everything in Romans. What I what I dismiss is the idea that that somehow should be used as a carrot or a stick yeah. to force people or manipulate them 
into God's kingdom. I think the richness of the gospel is that God created us. God sent his son. Jesus is, is fulfilled, fulfilled everything that the Old Testament talks about. He has restored all of creation. We'll celebrate with him in eternity. And in God's love and grace and mercy, he's invited me. And I actually have now through Jesus' death and resurrection, access to that kingdom. I mean, yeah. you know, and that doesn't that doesn't sell on a billboard. Maybe we don't need to put it on a billboard. I mean, yeah. and so I think we, and then it gets into the issue, well, my goodness, if we don't put it on a billboard, if we don't talk about salvations, how do we know if our church, quote, is winning? Well, then maybe you need to measure different things. It's, yeah. it's about discipleship. It's about uh, how many people actually have had transformed their families. It's about people living on mission, yeah. and it might not be about the things that that you know our denominational offices. And I'm not calling out the CGGC. This is a lot of, but that the things that we have been told matter. It might not right. be about attendance. It and yeah. So I you know I yeah. think there's a deeper conversation it, here. It, it, it's tough because it's it's hard to compact. I mean, the story that the scripture tells is it's hard to compact, like you said, onto a billboard or a sign or a booklet or something like that. And so, you know, I, I tend to, um, I don't worry as much. Maybe I should worry more about we're concerned, concerned about more entry. points. I think, I think there's a lot of entry points. There's various entry points we see throughout scripture, throughout our experiences that people encounter, thinking about Jesus, you know, whether it be out of a sense of conviction or a fear of death or a lack of purpose or a realization of sinfulness or whatever else. I think, you know, there's some of those that are probably better entry points than others. Um, my bigger concern is once somebody is kind of has come into that community or, or has become a person of faith, are we, are we telling this bigger story inside the community? You know, so I'm less, I'm less concerned. I mean, when I first came to follow Jesus, I didn't know any of this, but I was no, any of this, you know what I mean? I, di I didn't think in these terms, but you know, it changed my life. And, uh, and so I think, you know, God works through all kinds of stuff, but what I'm more concerned about Brent is that we're learning this way of thinking inside the church, inside the community of faith. So, right. Various entry points. But what is it that we're, how is it that we're shaping ourselves in the, yeah. in, inside the community of faith or in, or inside our theological education or whatever else, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I, I love that, that you're using the phrase entry point, because when you think about the Bible being an invitation where our emphasis really should be is on entry points. And then, you know, that, uh, that growth and the discipleship, the sanctification. And again, I think this comes back to how we view the Bible Yes, there's Genesis. Yes, there's Revelation. But we've been trained that, you know, just like this book by McIntyre, it has page one, it has the last page, it has a beginning and the end. When we, we see the Bible as a, a book like, you know, this one, then we read it, even if we don't read it in order, we read it with the idea, well, Revelation's the end, but we treat it as if it's already happened. And really, the invitational part is that. And I'm not talking interpretation because some would interpret that revelation already happened. So don't hear that. But but really, it's an invitation to do what just what you're doing. It's an entry point to a life of faith. We become and this is where I think we've begun to miss 
Uh, people forget that Martin Luther was a monk prior to, I mean, he, he wasn't he wasn't trying to create a Protestantism uh, and an evangelicalism that we've we've got today. So when he said sola scriptura and sola fide, and you know what what he was after was this notion that that we should let the Bible form us, and that should be the primary thing. Again, it was an issue of, of you know prioritization, but we have we've built up such a culture of you know, and we we've picked out to, well we shouldn't add anything to the Bible. No, but my but it, it's it, I'm not adding to the Bible if I say my life should become a living, breathing example of my faith in Jesus. I can talk about my faith formation, and and I'm not I'm not adding anything to Scripture. But we've we've gotten really weird, and and you know especially conservative evangelical cultures of putting things in and interpreting the Bible in such a restrictive way that we've forgotten that it's to form us. And if it's forming us, we need to talk about it. It's because there's such an aversion to tradition and such an aversion to talking about things other than these printed words in the page. So I think this whole conversation still comes back to what is the Bible? What was it really designed to be? What has it become? And in most cases, what it's become is completely different than what it was ever given to us for. Um, but yeah, entry point, it should invite us into a journey and a lifestyle of faith. Well, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, that entry point, I mean, is, is a good uh, conversation, but you know, one of the things that I think, you know, Nick and I kind of come back to a lot in our, our own discussions is that whatever, you know, and there's a lot of different, very interesting aspects that we can talk about, about the scripture and how it came together and the various aspects, et cetera. But what's, what's non-negotiable for us all to, I think, to agree on is that if it doesn't shape us, it's, it's missed, then we've missed the mark. We, we've missed the, the, the point of the story, um, of it because, you know, I mean, we, we could talk all day about the ways that we've gotten off track, Brent, honestly. And as we yeah. wrap up here, kind of the question becomes not, not for us to you know answer c- comprehensively here today, but it's much big. It's much easier to see problems, right, than it is to kind of actually work towards solutions with things, whether it be government or you know uh, problems at home or or whatever else. Um, but it's on the other hand, you know, is it really? Does it really need to be all that complicated? You know, is it is it that we 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 learn? Uh, from scripture and from the church's telling of this story, we learn more and more uh, of the story, and we learn more and more from the scripture, particularly for I think from the teaching of Jesus, the kind of people that are shaped for that story for his kingdom. Um, and then and, and we learn from Jesus and apostles and other and others the the things that we do, the habits or the practices that shape us into the kind of people that live into that kind of story. I mean, it fits together, I think, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think uh, yeah, and, and the Holy Spirit is working in us and and whether. Yeah, I agree that it, it's you know, there, there are good conversations to have what the Bible is, what it isn't and so on. But ultimately, yeah. being formed into the image of Jesus, recognizing he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the anchor of our soul. And, you know, all those things and uh, that, that really are forming us. That, are we living a life that day by day? the spirits working to conform us more to the image of Christ. Yeah. And and we can come from multiple starting points. And then I think, exactly. you know, that whole idea of, of a story, that question of, 
if my stories are out of alignment, if God's story is not priority, what does it look like then to maybe reorient or that process of, of realignment that allows my stories to get into better priority so that I can become a character in God's story, um, you know, becomes a conversation as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it not being all about us is actually good news. You know, I mean, we, in a, in a sense, you know, at least according to Jesus, because one, one of the yeah. things that just rings his teaching that just rings in my mind recently is th this idea that you have to lose your life to find it. Yeah. And it's when we lose our own, you know, whatever is our trying to carve out something for ourselves. When, when we give ourselves over to Jesus, to his story, to his kingdom, that's when we find life. Right. And so it's like, it's counterintuitive, but he says, when you lose your life for my sake, for my kingdom, then you find it. Like we find a purpose so much greater than the one that we had to lay down uh, along the way. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's nothing, there's no bad news here for us. It's a, it's a whole lot of good news, but we have to, but we have to, it's, it's a painful process in a sense, right? You got to be a living sacrifice. You have to lay down your life. You have to be last to be first. You have to be a servant of all to be first in the kingdom. And it's, you know, it's that upside down quality, but it's, uh, but it's, it's wonderful to live in. Well, you know, and we're trained to look at our retirement accounts and, you know, as I get older, you know, those, those things were trained to be more focused. But when we think about the prayer that Jesus gave his disciples, you know, give us today our daily bread. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's intended, you know, we think about the Israelites in the desert, the manna, you know, and the quail from heaven. We, we think about this idea that the prayer is give me today what I need. Okay. And, and, you know, Jesus was not a good capitalist. And, and, you know, that, that tension between trying to think about, okay, these things that have been built into our life and our systems and our economy and our politics need to be evaluated in light of what Jesus teaches. So yeah, I think starting with his words, the prayer that he's given, what we need to lose to follow him, uh, that's, that's the story. And it's, it's not an easy path. Yeah. However, there are others who will walk it with us. And it yeah. was never intended to be walked alone. Yep. And I think that's part of what we're trying to carve out here, right? More and more in the different, as we bring together the different pockets of our theological education, our seminary, our local training stuff, what Nick and I are trying to do here, what we're hopefully all doing in the local church is just building, you know, we're hopefully gaining focus over time uh, and kind of coalescing around some of these ideas that are, you know, it's hard to, pinpoint with maybe absolute clarity, but there's some things that we keep coming back to that I think are central. And hopefully as we align more and more on this, we'll start to really get some traction and, and make a difference in ways that matter uh, a whole lot. So I uh, thank you for your time, Brent, very much. Uh, we'll, f folks, we're going to continue this conversation a little bit on Tuesday. I think Nick will be back with us as well. Hope, uh, Brent, I think, is going to be able to join us for a little while. So if you have questions, if you have comments, remember, if you want to push back, we're, that's mm -hmm. okay. You can just say, I don't like that, or I'm not sure about that, or what about that, or don't, you know, whatever. Uh, bring your thoughts, bring your comments, bring your questions. We'll be glad to hear them, uh, to engage with them. We, we may be wrong about something. We just don't know what it is yet. Right, Brent? <laughs> so help us out. And uh, thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you, hopefully, some of you on Tuesday.